going to be in Second Kings chapter 4, again finishing up this chapter. I'm going to make a few comments um, from uh, last week. I didn't quite finish the account of Elisha raising the uh, Shemanite woman's uh, son. And so we left off really in verse uh Whoops, I'm in First Kings. Didn't look right. Verse twenty-two, uh, I think, or right in that area. Of course, her son is dead, so she uh, runs to Mount Carmel where Elisha was, and uh, Gehazi kind of shows Gehazi made a little hint here that there's something wrong with him. We'll find out more of that in next chapter. When uh, she kind of runs right by him, he, he says, you know, what's going on? And she more or less ignores him, just tells him everything's okay. And she falls at Elisha's feet. And Gehazi tries to grab her and get her away. And, and uh, Elisha, showing, uh, you know, some uh, compassion, can see something's wrong with her. She's no doubt, you know, in distress and tells him to back off and, uh, but, but then he wondered if maybe because she had been around Gehazi enough to know something's wrong, it's possible, because she didn't confide in him at all and just go straight to Elijah. You don't know, but could be since, like I say, next week it'll all be pretty obvious. But um, Elisha doesn't know. God hasn't shown him what's wrong with this lady. So he asked her a lot. Of, sometimes when they approach, uh, the member uh, Elijah and Elisha both already know what's going on, but in this case, they don't. Sometimes the Lord doesn't show us. He shows us things in his timing. And so uh, he doesn't jump to conclusions uh, like the servant who's just kind of assuming she needs to be uh, taken back or, you know, he, Elisha says, wait, Elisha, you know, wait and see what's going on here. And she, he finds out that her son is dead, so he sends, interestingly enough, uh, his staff with uh, Gehazi, he says, go and take this staff and use that to perhaps raise the boy up, which we know doesn't work. I was looking up the word staff. Um, the staff was something that somebody leaned on, they used to help to steady them, to walk, right? And we use the word staff today. If someone says, this is my staff, it's his people he relies on. He kind of leans on the boss or the owner, relies on these people, right? So that's where the word staff, as we use it, came from. So there you something interesting. But um, we, we talked a little bit about last week, I think about the, the differences of these accounts of people being brought to life. There's very few. But I think it gives us a preview of final victory. Um, they did it through the power of God. So when Jesus comes along and says, in the last day, I will raise you up. I'll raise the elect up or whatever the different times he uses it. He's already demonstrated that he's able to do this. He did it through speaking a word with the Lazarus and really just over the hill from where this woman lived. Uh, he uh, raised the uh, boy uh, in Nain. Um, who was, they were carting him off to bury him and he raises him up and he spoke in a word. They, of course, have to do, spend a little time. Elisha spends, I think, and it looks a lot like Elijah. He lays himself on, out on top of this boy and little bit by little bit, the, the life comes back. He, he warms up. You know, there's, it's a process. So demonstrate 
that uh, it's a power of God, but this isn't the Messiah. These are prophets. These are servants who are doing it. But, of course, the main thing I think is that death will not have the last word, that God is able to raise us from the dead. He's the one to give us life to start with. And so, um, make sure I get my notes right. You kind of look at this kind of going through last week, uh, week's notes, trying to pick out a few things I didn't get time to. Um, You might ask, why did uh, the staff not work at all? Why did it take Elisha to do this, lay on this child seven times? And perhaps um, to show us different ways, someone has pointed out anyway, that it's perhaps different ways that the Spirit brings life to people in regeneration. It's a, it perhaps a stretch, but it, but in other words, you see a process. And there's a sense in which... It, I think biblically speaking, we can say that it's a process when God saves us, when he regenerates us. It doesn't always look alike. Just like it doesn't look alike in God giving life to the dead in the Bible. That's how it is. And Some people get saved immediately without any real conviction uh, or any process. It's just very sudden. Some uh, might be years, uh, months, weeks, uh, a process of conviction of, of the Lord working in their life before they are brought to himself. And so I think there's a something to be said about that. Certainly it, it gives us a picture of that. Um, another thing here is that we see uh, Elisha persevering in his prayer. He's praying for this boy to be raised, working towards that thing. Uh, we can't expect the Lord to answer prayers immediately or on our timetable. And so the body is warmed, it says. Then he sneezes. Then he opens his eyes. Now, Arthur Pink, who's a great uh, commentator in his own right, uh, lived in the beginning of the early part of last century. Uh, you know, learned a lot from Pink. Uh, you know, love him. But he, his tendency was always to kind of see a whole lot more in a passage than probably one should. But, you know, that's something that I guess we can debate in heaven. And we'll see how all that goes. But he he says that it shows uh the, the the process here of Elisha shows first of all a warmed affection, then a clearing of the head or understanding, and then finally an opening of to eyes to the light of the gospel. So he's he's, he's saying this is definitely a picture of the regenerative process. And it's it's possible, but I think it it reminds us these counts that God doesn't always work the same way. And every time we try to think that God's got to do everything just the way he did it in the past or, you know, he, what he will do is he will do all things according to his revelation. What he says, you know, in, in God's word, he's going to always do that. But God can uh, do things. He can save people in ways and, and do things, uh, heal, work in people's lives in different ways. And we don't have to always uh, think that it's, it's going to be look the same way. And I think that the, these, these accounts kind of Reveal that to us. The last one, last scene here, though, is, is that Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, is on the mountain. But in this case, if he's going to be used in the kingdom of God, if he's going to be used in these people's lives, he's going to have to come down. He tried to do it by remote control, and it didn't work. You know, he said he sent his servant, and uh, you know, if we're going to serve the Lord, it means we're going to have to have relationships with people. We're going to have to get down. We're going to have to go to their homes. We're going to have to have them in our homes. We're going to have to meet them. We're going to have to talk to them. We're going to have to have 
uncomfortable conversations sometimes um, because that's just the way things are. If you think, you know, I was thinking about this, all the conversations in Scripture, a lot of them were not pleasant, you know, how about the weather? Very few of them were. They were sometimes confrontational. They were, they were sometimes, you know, rebuke. Uh, they were uh, sometimes exhortations where the, the Word of God was forcibly and clearly proclaimed and, and expecting a response. And uh, so, you know, I was just talking to someone here recently uh, who just, I just don't like any kind of confrontation. And, and they kind of uh, refer to it as that's the culture. That's a cultural thing. Well, I think a lot of people don't like confrontation. A lot of cultures don't like confrontation. But who cares? This this is always a problem. You start give, excusing your actions by your culture. It's not that culture is always wrong. It's a real thing. But when it interferes with God, or excuse me, with the Christian life, when you, you can't say, well, I know I should have said something to this person, but my culture, my background, well, uh, you know, it didn't work that way. I wasn't raised to be like that as a spider. Uh, well, now, now culture's gotten in the way. And, uh, so, I thought that was kind of interesting, but, uh, Elijah had to come down. And he had to, to, to work at this thing. And we gotta remember that, that. That's what the Christian life is about. And avoiding any kind of unpleasant experience because it's uncomfortable. Uh, where, do, where does anybody get the idea that that's uh, right? You know, nobody likes uncomfortable things. It's, that's what the word uncomfortable means. But sometimes life is uncomfortable. It's awkward. And uh, so just some things to think about as we move forward today and finish up this chapter. And by the way, I'm sure everybody's wondering about it. I kind of goofed my, uh, cut my hair last night, kind of. I think I inverted the six and the nine, the six millimeter and the nine, and used the six, so I should have used the nine, so it's a little shorter than I normally would do it. But anyway, that's why. Let's review last week uh, what we uh, dealt with uh, here in the first part of chapter four. Uh, we saw that God's blessings are given with the purpose in mind. He doesn't just give us things to use without serving Him with them. Uh, there, there's a purpose. And uh, we should everything that happens to us, whether it's whether we particularly like it or whether we don't, whether it's uncomfortable or whether it's not, whether it's comfortable. What would the how would the, I best serve the Lord with this thing? It's, it's not just given to you because God just wants you to be happy. Life is about the Lord. It's about us approaching Him, knowing Him, knowing how to worship Him and serve Him. That's what life is. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. I'm going to send you out a video, and I wanted to explain it kind of before I send it. I just saw it this morning, in fact, on YouTube. Uh, of someone was quoting a, a, a segment of Vodi Bakum talking about uh, funerals. I don't know if anybody happened to see that. And comparing two different funerals that he, you know, totally different. And how that one funeral was all about emotional catharsis and nothing about the gospel, nothing about... Uh, Nothing, nothing about how we, how do we approach the Lord in this? And in one funeral was, was all about, uh, the gospel and all about the Lord. 
And, you know, and of course, it's a great point to make with funerals, but of course, the one reason why I'm just sitting out there, everybody, it's very short, was that that is really the, the point of any service we have, and really in everything in our, in our lives, but certainly in services, the preaching, the study of God's word is that we might know God and understand God, know how to approach Him, know how to please Him, how to serve Him. That's what life is. That's what the, Word of God is. It is about the Lord. It's why we stress the sovereignty of God. It's why we stress what we do with trials and tribulations because that's what life is. It's not just about us feeling good. Certainly not us feeling good about ourselves. And so I thought it was just good. I'll send that out this week and if you want interest you can listen to it. But uh, we got to go a little bit quicker than this. But, uh, secondly, because of this he sometimes blesses us with trials for the same reason. And takes away blessings also for the same reason that we might serve him and, and understand him. Children are not promised a long life, so we must be careful to teach and to train them diligently when they are young. We saw this with, we've seen it here recently now, two ladies who have lost their young children. And, uh, that is a warning from scripture. It's a gracious and loving warning. It's not a downer. It's not, well, Another child dies. It's a warning to Christians, to serious parents, that, uh, you know, I, I need to take this seriously because that might happen to me. And if I just let my children play and, and never teach them and teach them about the seriousness of life and the seriousness of sin and the gospel, then I have contributed to their ruin. So we come now to... Uh, the latter part of chapter 4. Let's all stand and we'll read this section. Get my glasses cleaned here. Let's start reading in verse 38 of Second Kings 4. And Elijah came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. So that kind of sets up the whole scene. There's a famine in the land. We'll talk about that because that in the Bible always means something. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophet. And one of them went out into the fields. That is one of the prophets there that Elisha is kind of entertaining and feeding. To gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it, from it, it's his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing where they were, what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. And he said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men and they that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. So again, we see a process, a, a, one of a kind. Okay, we say one off today. Uh, one off way in which God does this. And because God can just do it, uh, things any way he wants to. And a man came from Baal Shalisha. Bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, and of course, he, this is always, this is Gehazi. He's always, he's always not, you know, a downer. He's like, well, you know, this isn't going to work or something like that, right? Um, and he said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated. That is, Elisha repeated to him, Give them to the men that they may eat. For, thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. 
may be seated. So here we see another very familiar miracle, right? That the Lord did when he fed 4,000 at one time, 5,000 other, that really 5,000 plus, 4,000 plus. Uh, here just a hundred men because, uh, it's the same God, but he's using men to do, but they're not the son of God, right? So there's always that difference, it seems like. Well, here we see, of course, the eighth and ninth miracles of Elisha. Um, a little bit different. Here these prophets uh, are in need of help from the Lord. And, of course, you know, what question is, why? what's this here for? What are we to see? Perhaps we could say, well, maybe we should have church socials because everybody might get food poisoning. Well, that's certainly a possibility, but I don't think that's the point here. Uh, what we're told here is there's a famine in the land. And famine in Scripture is always a judgment of the Lord. Um, we, there's a sense in which we could say famines happen. We live in a fallen world, and, and these things happen. And that's certainly true. But in Scripture, as a rule, famines are a judgment because God has said, I'm going to send famines for that very purpose. And, of course, we know this is northern Israel. They are in complete rejection of God, so it's no surprise that God has again graciously sent a famine because they knew the law. They knew Deuteronomy, the cursings, what was going to happen if you would forsake me. And God is just keeping his word. And they should have taken it seriously and repented. But what we also see is that sometimes God's people get caught up in judgments of the land. And God's people get caught up in the things of God. We're not immune to problems in life. And here the, the prophets were having trouble finding food, which would make sense in a famine. This poor soul goes out thinking he's doing a good deed, finds some wild gourds. Uh, the problem is he doesn't know that much about it. And uh, you know, if he's like me, you know, I'm no uh, expert on uh, certainly on gourds and squash and all that kind of stuff. And I can go out and get something poisonous. And this is like mushrooms. I, I know better to go out there and think. You know, see a mushroom and think, oh, I can eat this. You know, I don't have a clue. You know, pretty much so. And he, so he does, he does his best, but it, it, it doesn't work out, turn out too well. And, uh, I'm not sure why someone said that perhaps, uh, it, it was causing, uh, it was kind of acting like a strong laxative. They knew something was wrong here and everybody stops eating it. They, and, uh, so, cause they, they, they think it could be deadly. And so, uh, I think the reason, way to best understand what's going on here is to remember that there's a famine. Uh, perhaps something we miss in all this is why so many of these men's miracles involve food. Well, because food for us comes so easy that we don't think of it one way or the other. Our pantries are full. Even in the worst of times, you really don't have, usually have problems finding food. But for the, course of almost all of human history, and certainly for many today, getting your next meal, was that was kind of like all your effort was towards that. You know, growing, everybody had to grow their own food, or had to do something so that they could get it from someone who grew it for them, you know, but that was how it was. Food was a great challenge. And God uses this to show that he's able to take care of even our greatest challenges. He cares about our needs. He's able to easily answer their prayers and feed them. Uh, perhaps we could point out, too, that for us, food is probably a very mundane and common thing to the point that we take it for granted, no doubt. But uh, sometimes we need to remember, remind ourselves that uh, 
God even cares for the mundane things, and we can pray for the mundane things because we should be trusting Him for everything. Now, I was thinking about this, and I, I think that there's a difference between praying that God would supply our our, our, our daily bread. That's a proper prayer. It's a proper prayer, even though you have a good job and there, in the foreseeable future, there's, there doesn't seem to be any problem with you securing your food. It's still right for us to pray that God would continue to supply our needs because that's the only reason we have anything to eat. It's not because how well we work in our jobs or whatever else. At the end of the day, we rely totally on him. So that's a that's a good prayer, but I think we want to be careful too, though, maybe of being too mundane about it so that we start praying, well, Lord, I don't know what fix tonight. Help me, help me to choose the right thing to fix tonight. And I, and I think that, I don't, I don't think that's a proper prayer. And I'm care, careful, and I've thought this through, so I'm careful when I say this, because the Lord has given us will. He has given us a sound mind and uh, the ability to reason. And we're able to make choices. We don't need to pray about what color of, you know, I didn't pray, Lord, what color suit should I wear today? Because the Lord lets us go out and just, you know, wear, do all for the glory of God. And so I thank the Lord for my clothes. And now, by the way, my suits are all in the closet and I put, I take the one off the one end, wear that, put it on this end, and then the next week I wear that. So I don't have to worry about that, you know. But uh, that's just the way I, you know, I just I don't, you know, I don't like to, I don't worry about that kind of stuff. But so let's, I think you can say, well, what does it matter if you want to pray about what suit to wear or what to, the fix for, for tonight? What does it matter? Well, I don't think it's a sin, but you're you're refusing to live by faith. And you say, Lord, I want you to make every decision for me. I don't want to do the, take the time and the trouble to make the decisions myself based upon your revelation. Because it doesn't matter what you wear. You know, is it modest? Is it something you can afford? Then wear it. You know, so I just, that just kind of came to me as I was thinking about praying for our daily needs. We, 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 we want to take everything to the Lord, and, and I don't think anything's too mundane to take to Him. But there's a line that can be crossed, and, and I think it also just it it saves you just the worry. You know, if you're worried about every little thing and having to pray about every little decision, you know where where where's the uh, faith in the Lord to to do your best, make your decisions, do your thing, and then accept whatever the Lord would do with that, good or bad. So anyway, some things to think about. Now, and I'll say if you, and this is an example obviously, but if you pray to the Lord every, every meal before you eat what you should have to eat, I would love to sit down and talk to you and, and to figure out, you know, why that, why you feel like that was the thing to do. Maybe you've got a good reason. Maybe I'm completely off base here, but it, you know, but I would think you'd probably struggle a lot with anxiety if that's the case, but you know, anyway, we could talk. Well, We've already seen, though, that famines in this day were usually God's way of saying that people weren't right with him. So he's withholding blessings as a gracious way to give them opportunity to repent and turn to him. And so, of course, the big question is whether he grants repentance or leaves us on our own. And with northern Israel, he 
he's keeping his word, and he and, and any rational person should be able to put the pieces together of what's going on. But he doesn't grant repentance because because the Old Testament is a great big object lesson of the depravity of sin. That even when the light is shining on you, you're walking in darkness and you refuse it. And uh, so we certainly see that. Um, it's, there's an interesting verse here in Amos 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming. And this would have been in a, maybe just a, very shortly after what we're studying here now. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but none shall find it. And of course, this is eventually what happened. There's 400 years where God shut out all prophecy because they rejected the prophets for so many years that finally God just closed it off. And uh, that certainly is what happened. But and, and I thought, and I wonder sometimes that's not what's happened here in our own country in many places where the Lord blesses with the word and does great things and people get used to it. People start to scorn it, don't care about it. We'll, we'll see a little bit about this in our second message today where the scribes and Pharisees in uh, Herod's day, they, they knew the word of God. They just didn't really care at all about it. And so eventually God just... Uh, um, <clears throat> stops stops it all together. He, he stops blessing the word. There, you know, the word of God is in Europe, for instance. They, there, there are Christians there. There's something. There's no nothing going on there in the kingdom of God, but very, very little. And it's not because they don't have the word of God. It's because they don't care about the word of God, and they don't treat it like God's word. And, and God has removed His His Spirit. It, it's it's it, it began in Europe many ways. It moved to the Americas, um, uh, uh, and then but now we see it kind of going more to the third world countries, and, and we see it in China. Now you don't see it openly in China, but when there when there's millions of people evidently in the church, in churches underground, um, you, you see that the Holy Spirit is working. But, it, but you see a movement. If you don't take it seriously, eventually it'll be it'll be taken from you. And again, I think this is what Amos is, is referring to. Um, <clears throat> so the history is well. I've already kind of said this, where the word of God first came to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But but it moves, it changes. It, it's God's um, doesn't doesn't play games when it comes to um, obeying him. And so I think the point of our text is that we can identify with is that even the elect suffer right along with the world in such famines. I, I hope that we take God's word seriously. I hope that we're praying for his blessings to, to know him and to serve him well. But we live in a country that has completely rejected him on so many levels that uh, we're suffering some of the effects of that, right? And, and that's the way it always has been. <clears throat> we need to understand that we're no less deserving of those things. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that, well, you know, you guys deserve this, but we don't, but we've got to suffer. I don't think that's the right attitude. The attitude is, well, we're all sinners. We all deserve 
the, the curses of God and, and these things, but we thank God that he's gracious to uh, save us in spite of that. And even though we might suffer, we know that we have a great hope. We saw this in uh, First Peter. If you want to turn over there, um, just to remind ourselves of First Peter chapter 4. Let's read a few verses here. First Peter 4, starting at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. But the only reason you'd have to have the same way of thinking is if you're going to suffer in the flesh, right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's how God uh, sanctifies us. And so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's why I said, that's what the living in the flesh, in this life, is given to us for, that we might live in the will of God to worship Him properly, not to please the flesh. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, with respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the middle, in the same flood of debauchery, <clears throat> and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that through judge, though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So, a Christian is responsible to live in the reality that life is not just about uh, what pleases the flesh or what keeps me alive. You know, man should not live by bread alone. I must live in light of the fact that judgment is just around the corner. It is, you know. Uh, young or old, you, you, you just got a few years and then you can stand before the Lord. So life is about preparing for that, right? Among other things. Look up down at verse 17. This kind of gets really into what I was getting to here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? And of course, the persecution of the church under Rome was, was gearing up, and that certainly is part of what he's referring to there. But, but, the judgment was beginning in the church in that sense, not the judgment of, of saved or unsaved, but the, the, the God is doing his work uh, and, and putting the church through suffering to, to make it what he wants, to purify it. And so if he's willing to discipline his children severely, and we all know about the severity of the persecutions under Rome, and really ever since then, even today, but if he's willing to put his children through that for their good, what he, Paul Peter says, what think about the end of those who have rejected him. What will their end be? And of course we know it's going to be awful. And so um, this is what we find going on here in our text. The, the trials of life have different purposes. And we cannot expect it to be evacuated beforehand. So these prophets, these these people who are part of that seven thousand that had not bowed the knee to Elijah at the time, anyway. They were going through the same thing. <clears throat> but for different purposes. So the immediate context is to be without food or heavenly man or spiritual food. So there's, there's kind of a little picture here. Here's God's people. 
And uh, they have, they're under a little famine. They don't have food. And so Israel, after all, is a type of the church. We might see this as a picture of God withholding his blessings of God's word. Because they've been they've rejected it for so long. And you think about it, in our own country, the churches that have rejected by and large, rejected God's word. It has little place in the services, and it's all about um, entertaining and feel-good messages and a lot of singing and good, just emotional, uplifting stuff. You know, the whole Caleb thing. Well, you reject God's word, there's going to be consequences to that. And so in the midst of this spiritual climate, even God's prophets are finding it hard to hear from the Lord. And I think that, in some senses, American churches are are having to deal with this, and churches in the Western world. When God withholds his blessings, um, we struggle. The churches struggle in places where God's spirit is withholding itself. It is not moving in great ways like he did, you know, like they're in the Great Awakening and so forth. There are a lot of, and what's happened with this this uh, this group of guys here? Someone has brought in some bad food, and we got to be aware of that. That's what Jeff and I, one of our uh, duties, are to guard the flock against false heresies. Well, all heresies are false, right? but the people preaching things, and it, they're saying it's God's word, but it's not. They twisted it, and it's deadly. And we all have to be on the lookout for that kind of thing. I think there's certainly a picture of that going on here. Um, it bore a close resemblance to true food, but it wasn't. And so, teaching that doesn't produce a love for the Lord and godliness can only bring spiritual decay. There's, there's no in-between. Look over at First Thessalonians. Which passage I want to read? Just a little bit too long to put up on the screen. So I'll turn over there to First Thessalonians. Chapter 5, let's start reading in verse 19. This is uh, interesting because uh, <clears throat> these are Paul's, of course, parting words in, in this book. and He says, starting in verse 19, um, do not quench the spirit. And I, I think, you know, we do that when we don't take God's word seriously. We don't listen to it. We don't attend church. We don't attend the services. You know, we, we, you know, we don't. Study, we don't read, you know, that type of thing. There are all sorts of ways of quenching the spirit, not obeying the Bible. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So really the, the message is don't, don't despise the preaching of God's word. That's what prophecies were. But test it. Don't just believe everything you hear. But don't despise it either. You know, there are people out there who they've had a bad experience at church or because they know they're Bad preachers out there that, well, I don't go at all. Well, that's just disobeying. And that you're just hurting yourself. <clears throat> so test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. <clears throat> brothers pray for us. Now I think this is interesting because he just um, just uh, asked for to be prayed for 
right after he states that God will see to it that his people will remain faithful. So you see that we it's, it's proper to pray for the things that God has promised to do because that's God's will. That's this means to do it. So just because God has said he's going to keep us doesn't mean, well, I can't lose my salvation, so now I can just do whatever I want to do. I don't not going to take any of it seriously. We are to pray. We are to struggle because that's how the Lord causes us to persevere. And so it's not, it's proper to pray for those things that, um, <clears throat> he has, he has, uh, promised us. So brothers, pray for us. So forth. Well, anyway, sometimes things taste good to start with, but find out a little bit later. Well, this wasn't good for me, right? Um, Psalm 141.4 Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men whose work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Because let's face it, you know, that's what temptation is. The, the world out there has offers us all sorts of things that are interesting, that feel good, taste good, you know, pleasurable, speak to our pride, to power, you know, name it, right? But but David is asking, Lord, uh, help me to be able to discern if this is, you know, yeah, it might feel good, but is this something that is good for me long term? Right? Or is it, is it going to come back on me? You know, like, like it was happening with these guys. <clears throat> so the Lord here performs this great miracle here to, to give us, you know, and I think sometimes he does things in such a way so we have a good testimony. But, you know, these guys had a very interesting testimony. They had, they were sick, they were eating something that was poisonous, they had food poisoning, and, and uh, Elijah fixes it. He, 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 the Lord works out a situation that we can, that's tangible, that we can remember, so we can testify about it. That's what happens, of course, in the next miracle as well, the ninth miracle, where <clears throat> you got a hundred guys here, and there's a there's, someone's got a, a you know something for a, a few of it, and all of a sudden it's, it's feeding everybody, so it sticks in your mind. That's I think one reason why the Lord does it these do does things these this way. <clears throat> he could have just done it. They could have all been full, or there could have been a bunch of food just all of a sudden appear. But the Lord does it in a way that we can testify about, and we want to take advantage of that and not be afraid to testify of how God takes care of us. Well, certainly these types of stories are picturesque, picturesque ways in which the Lord shows us uh, and takes care of us. But it also speaks to this what awaits us. Because we, if the Lord can so easily take care of these guys, like he did here, like he did in Jesus' day, we know that uh, the, the heaven, eternity, will be a, a, an eternal, uh, will, will, be, will be this, but in eternity, where the Lord will be taking care of all of our needs in eternity. And he gives us these little moments to remind ourselves of that. <clears throat> so let's be encouraged. Also, because the Lord shows us that sometimes even our best attempts to serve the Lord don't end up going that well. This this poor guy was doing what he thought was best, you know, helpful, and it didn't work out that way. And we can't just completely fall apart because we tried to do something that didn't work. 
And I think some of us struggle with that, you know, because if, if, if this didn't work, well, I'm not going to ever do that again. You know, we've all heard that. Maybe we've said that. I, I tried it. It didn't work. And so that's it for me. No. You just learn from your mistakes and, and keep on doing the best you can. And, and so the Lord worked this out. If it doesn't go the way we plan, that's okay sometimes, you know. Um, so, uh, God is able to do good in spite of our weakest efforts. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful and grow in wisdom, but we, it reminds us that everything doesn't hinge on whether we do everything perfectly or not, right? And we can't be afraid to fail, or we can't be afraid to make mistakes, and we gotta be very patient with each other when people do make mistakes. I would much rather see people trying, doing something, than doing nothing. And even if it doesn't always work, you know, we should be thankful that someone tried. <clears throat> so we don't want to be judgmental, for sure. <clears throat> Remember, uh, the one and only time that my girls and they were, were young, uh, they said, well, we want to wash the car. And at, and at that time, we had a big old station wagon like he had back in the 80s, and uh, go at it. Well, you know, they just, they, they, they wanted to help, but all they really much did was just smear dirt around, you know, they didn't, the concept of rinsing and all that kind of stuff didn't quite, so it was kind of funny, when they got done, it was kind of funny, I think Carl looked worse than it did to start with, but they tried, right, <clears throat> and that's okay, so praise the Lord that he can take our efforts and uh, he can use them in ways that we maybe think we failed, but we don't know what the Lord's going to do with that. And so, um, <clears throat> here we see uh, the same problems. There's a time of famine, this last miracle, shortage of food. And uh, someone comes, he has a little bit of food, and uh, thinks, well, it's not going to do any good. And Elijah said, no, pass it out. Obey the Lord. Uh, and the Lord takes care of everybody. Now, something interesting here, we're about done. <clears throat> The food that was brought was this guy's first fruits. And if you remember when we were dealing with all this about giving and all that in First Corinthians, we talked about that. Paul brings this up, that, that up as well, first fruits. <clears throat> and this is what's going on here. Now the, the difference was that there, there was no temple and priest. They were all, it was all illegitimate. It was all idolatry. And so the godly, uh, people, they couldn't go to Jerusalem to, to give it like they would have, because they weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. And so this guy was bringing it to the prophets. He was doing his duty, but he, was, he, was, he wasn't going to waste it on the prophets of Baal, obviously, so he's, he's bringing it to the prophets. <clears throat> and we see this example of bringing tithes to uh, the Lord's work, and uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, <clears throat> we've been told that the Lord had a remnant, and here we see some of them uh, in, in the most unusual place here in northern Israel. Uh, I was reading about uh, during the Japanese occupation of China that a, uh, a well-known missionary, Little, was uh, there visiting. I'm not sure how or why he got in there, but anyway, he's busy. And, and the Japanese, I think they're at a restaurant or something, and the Japanese come in. And they're checking papers, and one of them sees the Bible on the table of this missionary. 
and uh, says, oh, is that a Bible? So, are you a Christian? And, and Little said, yeah. And he says, well, I'm glad to meet you. And shook his hand and, and, and then turned around and left. And so here you've got it in one of the most idolatrous, wicked armies that ever existed, the Japanese army, right? You've got a Christian, evidently, or, or someone who's sympathetic to to the Lord, uh, to Christianity, right? So the Lord has his people everywhere. And uh, again, he his kingdom's going to spread exactly like he wants it to. And so I thought it was kind of interesting, but uh, let's just close by uh, looking at Deuteronomy 8. This kind of explains, I think, the, one of the best commentaries on the providence of God in our lives. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. But you see, that, that's, that explains so much what goes on in our life. And absolutely cannot be forgotten. A Christian cannot be excused for not understanding that. And certainly we've gone through this and we, we deal with this enough to where there's no excuse. Uh, I mean, I know it's easy for us to completely forget about it when something bad happens, but once the dust settles, the Lord tests us to see whether our, we're real or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We are here for the Lord. We're not here to have full bellies. We're here to serve the Lord. And so, we live not because we can chew food. We live because the Lord gives us what he wants us to have. And so every morning when the Israelite woke up and saw that manna, the only biblical conclusion to come to was that God had decided that they would live another day. It was the Lord and the Lord alone. And when we sit down to eat from our well-stocked pantries, it is still the same thing because the Lord has decided we should eat another meal. And if he decides we won't, then we won't. So don't let the fact that you have a lot of food in the pantry numb you to what's really going on. These stories can't be taken that Christians will never go hungry or they'll never starve, but they clearly prove the power of God to keep his word and to do his will in us. It's easy for people to read the Bible and just jump to all kinds of false conclusions. Um, I was reading about a man who he went around speaking on temperance. This is way back in the day, uh, and he's speaking on temperance against alcohol. And uh, his one of his little object lessons was uh, to show the evils of alcohol. And he had a little uh, jar of alcohol, something strong, I guess. And uh, in the middle of his talk, there he would drop a little worm into it. So this is what alcohol does: he drop that worm into it. And of course, the worm would die pretty quickly. And so. His point, you know, what what does that teach us? And some guy uh, calls out, "Well, if you've got worms, you need to start drinking." <laughs> well, he was probably joking, but really, in a, in a second, seriously, they were both jumping to conclusions that weren't right. They, they didn't, you know, they, they were just very lightly looking at something and thinking they figured it out. And that's the worst thing to do with the Word of God—to think that. 
um, you know, to read it lightly, to don't take it seriously, to don't listen to the, the messages, the careful explanation of the Word of God, and you just jump, people jump to all kind of conclusions about the Bible. And it's not good. So God doesn't promise to meet all of our needs that life's going to be one big pleasure fest. And uh, to read a story here and there and come to that conclusion uh, just does a lot of destruction, a lot of damage. So anyway, we'll stop there today. Any any questions? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your goodness to us. Thankful that you uh, are in control of our lives and that, Lord, we can rest so serenely in the providence of God, even when we are in pain and uh, trials of life. And so we pray, Lord, that we would serve you well all of our days because the day is coming when you shall give us more than we could ever deserve in in the eternity. And, uh, Lord, all of our sins have been forgotten in Jesus Christ and we shall be treated as kings and sons of the king and Lord, we don't deserve any of that, and yet you have given it to us in Christ Jesus. And so help us to be patient in this life when things don't go the way we would like, knowing what lies ahead for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.